Brett Jensen, and I have the privilege of teaching the passage this morning. I am a member here at Chino Valley Community Church and also get to serve here as an elder uh, currently. Uh, Normally I'm teaching the youth, so I'm teaching the little kids. I'm teaching uh, from first grade all the way up through high school. And whenever I teach, I begin uh, almost all of my message this way, that I absolutely love learning about the Bible because it changes the way that I think, the way that I speak, and the way that I act. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that I'll do the same for you. So when Steph and I got married, uh, we came, actually it was in this sanctuary, and we stood before each other and, and we spoke our vows and made a covenant with one another. And we promised to love each other in sickness and in health. We promised to care for one another until death do us part. And then we took off on a plane. The next day we went on our honeymoon. And guys, it was a joy and delight. It was awesome. Every morning, pancakes. Every morning. Okay, chocolate chip pancakes, blueberry pancakes, just pancakes with like extra syrup on top of pancakes. Like I had a pancake, then I sandwiched it with another pancake. Okay, it was, it was awesome. Then in the afternoon, we would go to the beach, okay, and I would go out and paddle out, and Steph would just sit out in the sand, and it was like, oh, marriage is wonderful. <laughs> then I get home. And it was still great. We were connected. We were encouraging one another. We were praying for each other. But in year 13 of marriage, there have been days, times, and even seasons where it hasn't always been like this, that we're not pursuing each other with the same heart and intention. It's not that the newness went away. It's that we've, we've settled. We settled. We stopped pursuing one another. We've gotten so busy feeling. We've had times where we're more like roommates than husband and wife, where we're seeing each other at the door and we're just giving each other a high five and we're taking one kid to practice and another kid to this and and we get so busy. And in our marriage, we're just kind of going through the motions. And it's in times like this that we have to remind ourselves to break out of this funk and we have to return. We have to go back to pursuing each other and praying for one another, and caring for each other. We've been studying the book of Malachi, and the nation of Israel is also kind of stuck in this funk. You see, the nation of Israel has been in a long relationship with God. Israel's history has taken them through many different seasons. It started way, way, way back. They were slaves in Egypt, and then they were wanderers in the desert. And then They go and they get this promised land. And then they have good and bad judges. And then they have good and bad kings. And then eventually they get taken out of their land and they're put in exile. They're living under captivity. And they long for, oh man, if we could just go back. If we could just return. And then they go back to their promised land. This is where Malachi's at. They go back to the promised land. But it isn't what they thought. You see, they're just going through the motions with God. And not only did God notice this, but he desired to correct it. And so God sent Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. And the message that he has been conveying is that God is not pleased, but desires to restore their relationship. God has been identifying areas where he sees problems with his priests and his people 
And as we've been studying the book of Malachi, we've been seeing where the priests have been called out. In chapter 1, we've got to see that the priests have been called out because they're given some pretty lame offerings. In chapter 2, we saw that the priests had poor instruction. At the end of chapter 2, we see that the Israelites now, not just the priests, but the Israelites are being called out in their marriages. And then last week, we saw that they were questioning God's justice. And so we're picking up here where God is still trying to break them out of this funk and he's identifying areas of correction. And so if you guys would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 3. We're going to open with verse 6. In Malachi 3 verse 6, it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So let's start out with this, inc- this incredible truth. This is our first point today. God is unchanging. This is an incredible truth we can hold on to believers. God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. God is reminding us that he is immutable. God is unchanging. That means that his character, his will, his purpose, and his aim do not change. That who he is is unchanging. Who he is, God is loving. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is just. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is the true king. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace, and he is a mighty God. He is our wonderful counselor. He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he is all-present. Amen that this is our God. He is unchanging. See, God doesn't just say who he is, he displays who he is. This is an incredible reality of reading the Bible, of praying and growing in our faith, is that we get to learn about who this God is. And God is opening here and saying, for I, the Lord, do not change. He is reminding us that he is unchanging. He is immutable. He cannot be more loving. He cannot be more gracious. He cannot be more just or more worthy. Nor can he be less loving or less faithful. God doesn't change. And as we look at this verse, we may be wondering, well, why does God remind us of this truth here? Like, it seems almost a little bit out of context. Like, is God just kind of listing out his resume of attributes? Like, hey, guys, just so you know, I don't don't change, okay? Also, I'm loving. You know, he's not, like, you're wondering, why are we starting the sermon here? God's in the midst of his response to these people. They made an accusation in in chapter 2, verse 17. And God's responding to that. So let's go back to chapter 2, verse 17. And it says this, you, Israelites, have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, Israelites, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, Israel just got called out in their marriages. They just got called out that, hey, your marriages aren't doing very good. Fix it. And they use a great tactic that I'm very familiar with. I have two boys, okay? And as soon as I call one of those boys out, instantly they point to their brother. They go, whoa, 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 what about him? Hey, do you see that he clean this room, right? 
Israel just got called out in their marriage, and you know what they do? They go, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you come at us about our marriage, Lord, you, where's, what about you? Aren't you a God of justice? You delight in evil. Look at everyone else's, look at everyone else. And last week, Brian broke down the first part of that response in Malachi 3, 1 through 5. God answers how he is a God of justice. This was laid out in verses 1 through 5, that he is a God of justice. And what Brian taught on is that he has promised to them two things, that he has promised to them righteousness and he has promised to them judgment. That he will bring righteousness and he will purify us as a refiner. You see, a refiner would heat metal up to get rid of the impurities within. And as you heat metal, the impurities, they rise to the top and then they're removed. If it's not hot enough, though, the impurities won't rise. And if the metal is too hot, then you'll ruin the whole metal. And you know that God has the temperature just right in our lives to refine us. And he's bringing righteousness. And he's also bringing judgment that God laid out that he does not delight in evil despite their accusation. That God calls wickedness an abomination to the Lord. And what he delights in is seeing his law kept. So when we come to this verse in chapter 3, verse 6, God is reminding his people that he does not change. Meaning, I have been a God of justice and I will be a God of justice. I do not change. However, his response here to the, to the Israelites in verse 217 isn't complete. Because as I read the Bible, it says, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore. And when you see the word therefore in Scripture, we are taught to ask, what is the word therefore, therefore? Since God is a God of justice, Israel, if you were to get your justice, you would be consumed. Because you've been in sin. But he says, therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed because God is not only a God of justice, he is also a God of faithfulness. You see, God has made a covenant with his people. Notice right before he says, you are not consumed, he says, O children of Jacob. He reminds them who they are and who they are are special people to God. God has made a covenant with them going way, way, way back to Abraham. If you have your Bibles, we're going to flip back. We're going to go on a little tour of Genesis. Flip back to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at this Abrahamic covenant that God establishes with this people. This covenant is one that God established through Abraham. And then we're going to see it's reaffirmed to both Isaac, his son, and then his grandson, Jacob. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I, God, will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. This is God saying that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make a great nation out of you. 
This was then, Abraham had a son then. His son name was Isaac. If you flip over now to Genesis 26, go to the right a little bit. And God's going to reaffirm this covenant with Isaac. In Genesis chapter 26, we're going to look at verses 2 through 5. It says this, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So this covenant was established with Abraham. It then is reaffirmed to his son Isaac. And then Isaac has a son, Jacob. So let's now flip one more time to the right. Let's go to Genesis 35. I told you we're going on the tour. And in Genesis 35, 9 through 12, God reaffirms it again to his son Jacob. God appeared, uh, Genesis 35, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. This is where we get the term, uh, the, term the Israelites. Um, so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give you the land to your offspring after you. So God tells it to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, who is renamed Israel. He establishes a covenant that I will be your God and I will be with you. So now when we go back to Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, You, O children of Jacob, are not consumed because I made a covenant with you. See, you are God's people. And God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. See, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And God, in saying that he is unchanging, he's reminding his people that he will always keep his promise. Psalm 89.34 says this, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. This truth that God upholds his promises is Israel's hope. And it remains our hope today. We have assurance that what God promises that he will do, he will always do. And so despite their sin, God is faithful. So now let's go to verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So God now is getting into some correcting. He tells them, hey, you guys have turned aside from my statutes. You haven't kept them. He's referring to this Mosaic covenant where, uh, established through Moses where God gave them laws and commandments and rules they were supposed to follow. God reminds them of this covenant and tells them, hey, you guys haven't been doing it. And so the Israelites haven't kept up their side of the covenant, but because God is faithful, God is in pursuit of his people. He calls his people to return. 
He said, return to me and I will return to you. The Hebrew word here for return is the word shuvu. Say it with me one time. Shuvu, okay? It means to return, to come back or to restore. The prophets use this word in calling Israel to repent, to stop doing what you are doing and to return back to God. See, God is in pursuit of his people and he is seeking to restore their relationship. And God has been in pursuit of his people throughout all of scripture. I was sharing about how God is unchanging, how he is immutable. But please don't mistake immutable for God being immobile. See, God is willing to act and answer our prayers. He is faithful and desiring to teach and grow and shepherd his people. God is active. And throughout the Bible, we see God in pursuit of his people. It started with his, his first two. He, he created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve, everything was great in the garden, and Adam's naming the animals, and, and they're having this great time, and all of a sudden, that serpent comes in, right? And they get deceived, and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And instantly, they realize what they've done, and they then make loincloths for themselves. And in verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Can you imagine that? They knew they had messed up. They knew they had sinned and they hid themselves. And so quickly we go to the judgment, but we skip out on verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? You see what God did? God knows they've messed up. And so he says, I'm going to pursue you. See, God's been in pursuit of his people throughout all of scripture. In the New Testament, one that came to mind for me was a guy named Saul. He was persecuting a bunch of Christians. And God said, no more. Instead, you're going to be one of my disciples and you're going to preach the gospel to everyone. And God's in pursuit of his people here in Malachi. And he calls them to return to Shuvu. And look at how the Israelites respond. The end of verse 7, they say, but you say, how shall we return? Now, you may read this question and think, oh, wow, well done, Israel. How shall we return, Lord? That's not the question they're asking. They're not saying, oh, Lord, what have we done? What do we need to do to make it right? No, the Israelites are saying this. Why do we need to return? We thought we were good. I mean, we're no longer in captivity. What do you mean return? How shall we return? We thought we were already with you. Look what God says in verses 8 and 9. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. See, God reveals their disobedience. God reveals their disobedience. He's willing to speak truth to them. He gives them an example of one of these statutes that they've turned aside from. He says, will man rob God? yet you are robbing me. Maybe what they should have done right there is stopped and considered that question a little bit more. Instead, they double down and they go, hey, how have we robbed you? 
and God lays it out for them in your tithes and offerings. You see, they weren't bringing the full tithe. They were giving God only what was partial due to him. As we read later on, we're going to see that times were tough right now. Their crops weren't producing as much fruit. Locusts was eating all of their crops. And so they reasoned, maybe, maybe it doesn't really matter if we give to God the full tithe. Maybe we'll just give him a partial tithe. You see, what the Israelites were told to do in tithing was laid out in Scripture. By definition, a tithe is a tenth of their produce set apart for special purposes. And so the Israelites are giving specific instructions on how to tithe. And during the Mosaic Law, they actually had three tithes. We're going to look at uh, three of them. Um, the first one I'm calling the Levite tithe. This is the one that we most commonly think of. This is that they were supposed to tithe one-tenth to the Levite tribe. You see, when God gave the promised land, he gave every tribe, every one of Jacob's sons, a, por- a portion of land, except for the Levites. The Levites were to live among the people, and out of the Levite tribe were the priests. And so the rest of the Israelites were supposed to tithe one-tenth to the Levites. And we read about that in Numbers 18. And then they actually had two other tithes. The next one is the festival tithe. This is during the year that God had called his people to celebrate different feasts and festivals. And they were to tithe one-tenth. They were to set aside money and food so that they could go to these festivals and be a part of these feasts to remember God. And that was another tenth that they were to take each year. And then the last one I'm calling the poor tithe, that Israel was to tithe one-tenth, but every three years. And this was to support the poor, the fatherless, and the widows. So if you add all these up, that's 10%, 10%, and then a third, like every, every three years kind of thing. It's like 23%. So if you hear people say that, this is where they're getting that from. Okay? And so these three tithes is what they're called to do and not doing. And as the Mosaic law describes, God assured there was blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Which is why we see in verse 9 it says, you are cursed with a curse. The whole nation is not following what God asks. Therefore, God tells them they are cursed. This is why their land is drying up. This is why insects are eating their crops. And at this point, I'm going to hit pause in the passage because I just laid out a bunch of tithe stuff. And some of you guys may be wondering, whoa, whoa, whoa. Brett, so what are we supposed to give? Is it, is it 10%? Is it 23%? Is it pre-tax? Is it post-tax? I'm going to hit pause on that, and I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to talk about a bigger idea called stewardship. The Bible lays out both in the New and Old Testament that we as Christians are called to be stewards. It began in Genesis 1.28 that we are called to be stewards of the land. We read in Matthew 25 that Jesus tells this parable about the talents. And God giving us talents, and we are to steward what God has given us. See, stewardship implies that we are caretakers of somebody else's belongings. For the Christian, it's the management of God's property. See, stewardship is not the management of your assets. Stewardship is that all you have, everything that you have is God's. And you are just managing it for him. And with this lens of stewardship, the concept of giving looks altogether different. You see, we're not giving what is ours back to God. We are giving to him what already belongs to him. 
And this may feel counterintuitive. And the degree that it feels counterintuitive is the degree of your misunderstanding of your stuff. And so with that framework of stewardship, what does the Bible say about us giving today? Well, first I want to share with you guys that we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And in Romans 6.14 it says that we are reminded that we are not under law, but we are under grace. This means we are not called to have a Levite tithe, a festival tithe, and a poor tithe. So then what does the Bible teach about us giving in Scripture? Here's what I read. Before the Mosaic law, a guy named Abraham, we talked about him earlier, he gave one-tenth to the high priest Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Jacob, his grandson, vowed to give a tenth to God in Genesis 28. During the Mosaic law, they were called to give a tenth to the Levites, a tenth to the festivals, and a tenth every three years to the poor and needy. So if I was building a framework of how much I am called to give, I would strongly consider these passages. But with that said, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that we are called to give a certain amount or percentage. Instead, God challenges us in a way that is uniquely different. Let's look at uh, 2 Corinthians 9-7. It's coming up here. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we'll leave that up there. So how are we to give then? From this verse, here's what I see. As decided in his heart. This is a call to give. Make no mistake, we as believers are called to give. We are God's stewards. But it's a matter between you and God. Pray about it. Decide on it. Second, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Never should I or anyone make you feel guilted into giving a specific amount or percentage. And I would warn you to stay far away from anyone who does. And third, and last, cheerfully. And later, if you look more into 2 Corinthians 9 and, and other parts of the New Testament, I would also argue generously. We should be giving with joy and meeting the needs. See, giving something is we, we get to do as believers, but in no means is this intended to be like a checkbox. So instead of me answering the question of how much we should give, I'd rather share with you two questions that I myself consider. The first question I ask myself is, do I view myself as God's steward? That is to say that all that I have, my bank account, my house, my 2005 Toyota Tundra, all that I have is from God and to be used for his glory. Do I view myself as God's steward? And after I wrestle with that question, my second question I ask myself is, am I giving cheerfully and generously? See, God has called me to give faithfully. Am I using the resources that he's given me to spread his gospel? And finally, throughout scripture, it's clear that our giving should go three places, to meet the needs of the church, to proclaiming the gospel, and supporting the needy. So our pause on the, on the passage now, we're gonna go back to Malachi chapter three. God tells him, hey, you aren't bringing the full tithe. So let's look at verses 10 through 12. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. 
that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. See, God gave them truth. He called out their disobedience, but God also gives them grace. God challenges them back to healthy stewardship. He tells them, bring the full tithe. They weren't bringing the full tithe. This isn't them being stingy, or as my dad would say, frugal. This is them holding back what belongs to God. Hence, they are robbing God. And God says, put me to the test. This is the only time in scripture that I've read that God asked his people to put him to the test. Normally God tests us in our faith, but God is serious about giving. And he gives his people a challenge to see what good stewardship looks like. God's telling his people, you've tried disobedience. That doesn't seem to be working out for you. Why don't you try trusting me and watching me work? And look what God promises. You do that and I will open the windows of heaven. God is telling him, I will send rain for all of your crops. I will rebuke the devourer. That's a locust. That's the insects that are eating their crops. I will take care of that problem for you. Your crops will grow and bear fruit. I will pour down a blessing for you. And the result all the nations will call you blessed, not just because their land is fruitful, but because they serve a God who provides. So as we finish this passage, you may be asking me, what's the takeaway? I believe God is calling the, the Israelites here into healthy stewardship. And yes, I believe that may be what you need to consider in your life. Are you stewarding what God has placed in your life? But I don't think it should stop there. See, back in Malachi 3.7, the Israelites turned aside from God's statutes. And I believe tithing and stewardship is just one of these statutes. God's message goes beyond just correcting our tithing and stewardship. His message to them is the same message he has for us. To shuvu. To return to God. The Israelites have been called out to return. They've been called out in Malachi 1, 2, and 3 so far. In giving God their best, in returning to giving godly instruction. Return to God in your marriages, and here return to God in your stewardship. We need to return to God. In my opening, I was talking about how Steph and I sometimes stop pursuing each other the way that we desire. And if I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes in my relationship with God, it's the same. Sometimes I stop pursuing God the way that I want to. And I start going through the motions with him. I mean, like sin is so easily entangling and distracting. I find ways to like justify why I'm ignoring God that day. And God's message to me is, hey, Brett, Shuvu, come back. 
And as I close, I want to talk about what that looks like. But my question for you is, where have you let your life wander? In a way that keeps your eyes and your heart focused on the wrong things. Where have you let your eyes, life wander in a way that keeps your eyes and heart focused on the wrong things? Maybe it's in your stewardship of your finances. Maybe it's simply just sin in your life that you need to repent of. Or maybe it's something morally neutral, not necessarily good or bad, but it's taking up way too much of your time and focus. I think returning to God, I have four things that I see. Returning to God first begins with the heart. God doesn't want us to manifest it on the outside and inside be faking it. We need to recognize that without God, we are dead in our sins. Let me say that again. We need to recognize that without God, we are dead in our sins. Without God, we have no hope in this earth. And only because of God sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, only because of that do we have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. Returning to God begins with the heart. This is the gospel. If you've never committed your life to God, if you've never entered in that relationship, you've never told God, I realize I'm a sinner. I need your grace and forgiveness. Lord, please help me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Man, today could be that day for you. Returning to God begins with your heart. If we don't do it with our heart first, then all we're going to be doing is manufacturing things on the outside. That all of what I just talked about is going to sound like an obligation, something you have to do, not an opportunity, something you get to do. Secondly, returning requires an all-in mentality. If you ever watch a poker game, you see people sitting around the side of a table. A lot of times when they make their bets, they have a big stack of chips they have, and they, they put some of their chips in. Returning to God means that we push all of those chips in. You go back to Malachi 1, verses 8 through 10. Look what it said. Malachi 1, 8 through 10, it says, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Here's what was happening. The priests were bringing these lame offerings, literally sick, like one-eyed, like they're supposed to give God their best. And they're looking for the one that's kind of like out the door, you know what I'm saying? They took that one, they say, hey, let's offer this one. It's already almost out the door anyways, right? They give it to God and they say, here you go. And God's saying, you would present that to your governor? That's what you're going to give me? Your leftovers? 
And God's response is, oh, you know what would be better? Just close the doors and don't even come in here if that's what you're going to bring to me. I want your absolute best. Following God requires an all-in mentality. That we're going to give God our best. God doesn't want our leftovers. God isn't going, oh man, Brent, if you could just give me some scraps today, just a quick little prayer, whew, that would be good. That's not what it says in scriptures. This isn't what I read. God says, if you're going to come, bring your best. My youth pastor, Jason Andrews, said it this way. Being a Christian is the worst hobby in the world. If being a Christian is just a hobby, you have wildly missed the point. As my high school students, some of my math teachers, my high school students would say it this way, following Jesus isn't a side hustle. Following Jesus is the lens on which we see and act. Returning to God requires an all-in mentality. Third, returning is not stagnant. Israel wasn't allowed to just return to God and stop there. This call to follow God was a lifelong journey. See, if we're to walk in his ways, then we need to keep up where God is calling us. This is why we read in Galatians 5.16, it says we are to walk in the spirit. And as I read in Galatians 5.25, it says not just walk in the spirit, but keep in step with the spirit. That where God calls you, you go. Returning to God is not stagnant. We don't go, okay, God, let me get it right today on Sunday. I'll see you in a week. It's waking up on Monday morning and going, Lord, I'm going to work today. What do you have for me? Who in my life needs to see you through the way that I live? Through the choices that I make? Through the words that I say? You see, we have to keep in step with God. This is why God calls us when we are called to pray, that he says, God, give me today my daily bread, one day at a time. Run to me each day, and I'll lay out for you what you need to do today. Finally, returning to God makes us shine bright. We saw this in Malachi 3, verse 12, that if we return to God, we will be a light to all those around us. There won't be a need to manufacture it. It'll come forth from our life like a spring of living water. That's why Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's why when I read about fruit of the spirit, it's a product of our lives. You see, we can't manufacture the fruit. We don't go to God and say, God, today what I want is I want to be more merciful. Yes. Mercy came out from me today. God says, you abide in me, you live with me, and then fruit will come out of your life. I have a, I have a lemon tree. It's basically the only tree that grows fruit in my house, okay? I have other trees, but they don't do very well, okay? Um, I have a lemon tree, and it grows lemons, but you know how it doesn't grow? It doesn't look at me and go, I tell it, today, lemon tree, you will grow a lemon. And it goes, okay, lemon. 
It doesn't happen that way. Rain falls, it cultivates, it has these like flowers, and like most of them fall, but then like some of them turn into lemons, and then boom, eventually they get bigger, like, oh my gosh, there's a lemon. You see, in our lives, if we want fruit to come out of our lives, we can't go, hey, today I'm just going to do it. That's us manufacturing it. It's not God coming out of our lives. But when we return to God, we will shine bright. This is why we read in verse 12, it says, then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. My prayer for us as a church is that we would be a place where God's name is glorified, where truth is spoken, and where grace is given. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love who you are. God, it's incredible to read in your word that you are merciful. God, that you are gracious. That you are unchanging. Lord, that you are a God of justice, Lord, but we thank you that you are also a God of faithfulness. And God, that we view ourselves as your stewards. And Lord, when we wander off, Lord, the message you had for the Israelites is the same message you have for us that we would return. Lord, because in you is hope. In you is peace. In you is life. opportunity to learn about who you are. God, that you are in pursuit. That you are active amongst us. Lord, would we be aware of that? Would we humble ourselves? And God, would we say thank you? blessings that you have given us. God, would we be faithful to that? 